The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this year, once a month, I'm giving uh, talks on the perfections, the paramis or paramitas. We have these day-long, on Friday once a month, where we look into these paramis in some detail. And then the following Sunday, it's the custom now to give a talk on that topic. And uh, now we're at the, the perfection of wisdom, lofty topic. Um, and uh, so today's uh, talk will be about wisdom. And to say something about the perfections, uh, these paramis, uh, they are beautiful qualities of character, of mind, of heart, that um, hopefully get activated as people practice. But in turn, as they're activated, as they're strong, they then support practice itself. And I like to think of them as, um, for many people, at least some of these, some of these these character qualities are strong in some people, but that um, I think of them as hidden treasures. And that part of practice is to bring forth these hidden treasures that we all have. There is sometimes a tendency in Buddhism to look at um, uh, all our attachments and uh, the things that we're, uh, sometimes they have powerful words like our defilements or our taints or our toxins. They have a great, wonderful list of all the problems in Buddhism. But but, uh, as important it is to be honest about what goes on in terms of causing us trouble, there's also um, part of practice is to give, bring forth these hidden treasures that we have in our potentials we have in, our, in ourselves. So they become strengths and support not only us, but support the world around us. And that's one of the qualities of these perfections, these 10 perfections, is not only do they support us in our practice, but they also are meant intentionally to support our compassionate concern and involvement with the world around us. So the ten, these 10 hidden treasures, and you know, Maybe some of them are hidden for you, maybe some of them are not. But uh, potentials that can be developed are, first one is generosity. The second is ethical integrity. The third is the capacity to let go. Often not seen as a treasure, right? Because letting go means deprivation. (laughs) But anyway, the capacity to let go is considered a great treasure. And then uh, today's topic is wisdom. And then there is um, effort and patience. And then there's um, um, resolve and truthfulness. And there is um, loving kindness and equanimity. So beautiful qualities that uh, can be cultivated. So today we're talking about wisdom. And uh, sometimes wisdom has been seen uh, or defined as uh, the ability to use knowledge, to use our understanding. So it's not just simply having understanding about things or knowledge, but uh, to be able to apply it in ways that are useful. And that implies that we have to, uh, that it connects to our priorities, our values, what's meaningful for us, what's important for us, our priorities. And if you start looking at those parts of our life, um, and then, at least from a Buddhist point of view, we're trying to we're, we're delving into some of the deepest places of meaning, of value, of priorities, 
around which we organize our lives. And so wisdom would be the ability to um, apply our understanding, our knowledge, in a way that uh, supports some of our deepest intentions, our deepest priorities and values, deepest possibilities, which is in Buddhism sometimes is uh, explained in shorthand as liberation uh, or awakening. Um, now in terms of you know, thinking about this, you know, wisdom and all these paramitas as being hidden treasures and focusing on them, I'm fond of the analogy of these um, segmented wooden Chinese snakes. I think I associated them with Chinese little, you know, things. And um, they were kind of this, and um, you know, they, they, they kind of curve around, you can play with them. And now if you take one of these Chinese snakes, these curved, segmented little wooden snakes, and if you push it, push it across the table by its tail, it bunches all up into all these little S-curves. And it kind of, you know, it's a little bit slow to push across. But if you grab it by the head and pull it, then it straightens out and becomes easy to pull, you know, easier to pull. And um, so do we push from the back or we pull from the front? And uh, sometimes uh, focusing on uh, the treasures we have, the beautiful qualities, sometimes, you know, the, what works for us, what's good, sometimes for some people is, it makes it more like everything straightens out and becomes easier to pull things along. And then it needs to push from behind against all the difficulties and challenges we have. So we're looking at wisdom. And, um, and um, how lofty it is in Buddhism is seen from the idea that the perfection of wisdom is the mother of all the Buddhas. That uh, in order for... Buddha is considered a pretty you know, wonderful person in Buddhism. But you don't have a Buddha unless you have wisdom first. That is the perfection of wisdom that allows someone to become a Buddha. So it's sometimes called the mother of all Buddhas. Perfection of wisdom. And at places like Spirit Rock, now on the altar, um, they don't only have a, the statue of the Buddha, but next to the Buddha, an equal kind of position, they have this beautiful statue of um, the perfection of wisdom as a female. It's beautiful, dignified, upright um, uh, statue that uh, is quite beautiful to look at, and just in, in dignity and power and strength. And so it has male and female image standing next to each other on the altar, the perfection of wisdom. There's also, uh, in, in uh, Theravadan Buddhism, the idea that wisdom is a tree, and, um, and that it has, you know, has roots and trunks and branches and leaves and all that. And I like this analogy because it uh, gives this organic sense of a tree that grows. And um, rather than it's a done deal, like you, know, you have wisdom or you don't, but rather in the cultivating wisdom, we're cultivating a tree, we're developing a plant. Something is growing and we're nurturing and tending something so that it can develop uh, within us. And so we develop the wisdom tree. You could develop other trees. Uh, you could develop the hate tree. Um, by feeding hate, by acting on it. You can feel, feed the desire tree, greed tree, by just spending all your time being greedy. What you do with your mind, what you do with your activity in your mind, body, and speech, um, uh, uh, feeds something, nourishes something. And so part of the wisdom tradition in Buddhism is you want to be careful of what you nourish. And uh, if you just let your instincts kind of just guide you, you kind of have like raw... You know, I don't know what um, 
I have this teenager at home. <laughs> Is that all? That's maybe all I need to say. <laughs> you know, just let those instincts just feed those, and we're all in trouble. And um, and so um, so you know, what tree do we feed? What what route? What what direction do we develop our life in? So this tree, and a tree has roots, and uh, our life has roots. And one of the wisdom teachings of Buddhism is that you want to get down to the roots of things. You want to get down to the basic uh, source of which we build the edifice of our life on. If we are only focusing on the surface, on the leaves, well, you can pluck a leaf, you can maybe you know, do something with a leaf, but the leaves come and go. Uh, but what's much more stable is the trunk and the base and the roots. And so you want to kind of uh, make sure the roots are well tended and, and cared for. You want to get down to the common denominator of uh, all our behavior and all our activity. Uh, if you go, if you take, if you just kind of adjust the leaves on the tree, uh, you can be doing that forever. But if you get down to the roots, uh, and uh, then you can maybe affect all the leaves at the same time, uh, not just individual ones. And so, what Buddhism teaches is that the the um, the common root, the common denominator for all our behavior in our life is in your mind. And uh, Buddhism over and over again points back to our mind as being the source. Sometimes there's very lofty language about that in certain schools of Buddhism. And the mind is kind of the source of all our experience of reality. In our tradition, we don't go that lofty, but we do emphasize tremendously the, the, that the mind is the genesis of our behavior, genesis of how we relate to the world, genesis of uh, how we see the world and, uh, and engage in it. And that's true both for the inner world of our own psychology, our own heart and mind. It's also true in the world externally. And as we uh, go back to the root, we come back to the common root, both for how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to the world externally, to other people and beings. And so it's very interesting to go back to that root that's, uh, that uh, is the common root of both inner and outer world. How important this is in Buddhism um, is uh, seen in the opening, page, opening verses of Dhammapada, which is kind of like the beginning of the Buddhist Bible, like the first words, if anything, qualified, where it says, um, uh, the mind is the forerunner of all things. The, um, what you, how you think what you, uh, with your mind, what you intend with your mind, is a source of your happiness and, and unhappiness. And um, uh, you might argue with that and say, well, um, I've heard, you know, in my religion that other things are the source, like, you know, God's a source, something else is a source of everything. And, well, that could be, but, um, but uh, your mind is a source of the choices you make. Uh, your, your, your mind is a source for how you relate to things. And so Buddhism, in Buddhism we want to take responsibility for how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we relate, um, what the motivations and intentions are for how we behave. And so Buddhism, uh, for better or worse, then uh, comes back and keeps looking back at this root in ourselves. What do we do? What's our, what is in our behavior? So um, there's a wisdom story that's famous of the Zen, uh, this man who comes to the Zen master. And um, I think in the story he's a philosopher, professor. 
and he comes to uh, learn Zen from the Zen master. And so the Zen master offers him tea. And so the, the, um, the professor holds up his empty cup and the, and the Zen master begins pouring the tea. And, um, and then as it gets closer to the top of the teacup, you're supposed to stop pouring. But the Zen master just keeps pouring and pouring. And then it starts spilling over into the saucer. And the, um, and the, uh, and the, the professor says, stop, stop. You know, you know, you can't put any more tea in. The cup is full. And the professor says, um, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, I can't put any more knowledge or wisdom into you. <laughs> You're already full of knowledge. You have to kind of somehow empty yourself in order to be able to take what I have to teach. So it doesn't mean you have to forget all your knowledge and everything you've understood, but there is something about um, letting the mind be empty or open, receptive, that's a very important quality of wisdom. If you come with all your preconceived ideas, and expectations of what's supposed to happen and what's supposed to be, then it's hard to, to really see uh, something new or understand in a deeper way. Um, so one of the, I think, for me, one of the interesting um, distinctions uh, about wisdom is that wisdom is not knowledge. <clears throat> I don't think you can read a book and really get deep wisdom from the book. <clears throat> or you can't listen to a talk like this one today on wisdom <laughs> and really get deep wisdom from it. Uh, you can get something, hopefully, and uh, maybe some wisdom teaching. <clears throat> but really, it's a matter of what you... Uh, wisdom, the, the deepest wisdom in Buddhism is a wisdom that comes from your discernment, from your insight, from your really seeing deeply into yourself and into the choices and, and the possibilities that you have for the purpose of living a life that's peaceful, for a purpose of living a life that doesn't have a conflict in it, for a purpose of living a life that is compassionate, for a purpose of living a life that doesn't have undue suffering from the ways in which we cling, grasp, resist, struggle, and live in conflict. So, for that purpose, and because, you know, to really define wisdom, you have to kind of understand for what purpose is the wisdom there, rather than just generic, you know, let's just be wise. And so, for, uh, Buddhism comes back over and over again to the idea that it helps, you help, your help, life has helped a lot if you do have some sense of purpose, some sense of direction, some sense of orientation that allows you then to be discerning, to see and help you make the choices you have to make in your life. And we all have to make choices. So what are the choices that helps us engage in our life so we're not living so much in conflict? One of the definitions of a wise person in Buddhism is someone who doesn't uh, use force to get their way, but rather uses, uh, um, uh, you know, can approach life and do what needs to be done in a way that is more uh, forceless or nonviolent or has expressions of kindness or compassion as part of it. Um, as someone who's cruel is not wise. Uh, someone who lives by the precepts is understood to be wise. Someone who lives by wholesome activity is wise. That wisdom in Buddhism uh, is supported and nourished by eth ethical integrity. And, and it's not just that that's, you know, kind of an incidental thing, ethical integrity, 
I see it as really being at the heart of Buddhism because ethical integrity is to be whole. I think that's kind of my idea of what integrity means, is to be whole. And we're trying to find a way not to be at odds with ourselves, to be whole, whole in a way that brings us peace or sense of uh, deep sense of well-being, being at home, being connected, being, being um, um, you know, being, I, lo- I love the expression being at home in ourselves in some deep way. So wisdom is not just knowledge, but it's the, partly the application of knowledge but it's also, in Buddhism, uh, wisdom is also involves discernment. Wisdom is not just a set understanding that you have, that you apply, but it's a very important part as to how you come to that understanding. Um, and the ability to use your mind actively, not just to be passive and empty, like you know, seemingly the story of the professor uh, implies, but to have, <clears throat> have a mind that's open and relaxed, but then be able to think clearly for yourself. <clears throat> to be able to engage in a process of what can be called discernment, to discern and look more carefully, what's really going on here? <clears throat> uh, it's very easy to succumb <clears throat> to our fixed ideas of how things are. It's easy to succumb to feeling sorry for oneself, or to succumb to anger, or succumb to despair, or to succumb to you know, all kinds of ways which narrows or limits our capacity to keep looking, keep looking, what's going on here, to investigate. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which we give up the process of looking more carefully what's here. And part of wisdom in Buddhism, the discerning quality, is to always come back and say, what's going on here? What's happening now? What's happening now? And I can tell you that changes the whole ecosystem. They say that if you bring a new species into an ecosystem, the whole ecosystem changes. If you bring investigation into the ecosystem of your despair, as an ecosystem of what challenges you, Rather than succumbing to things that are, you know, where you get stuck in it, just keep asking, what's really going on here? Maybe I don't know yet. Let me look at this more carefully. It changes the whole dynamic of what's going on, um, if you bring that interest. And then once you look, look more carefully. Look at your beliefs. Look at your uh, emotions, your reactions. Look around you, like, you know, in in the world around you, and get a sense of um, more detail what the consequences of your actions are. Look at um, what you're receiving, the information you're receiving. This idea of being discerning has to do with being, making finer and finer distinctions to see what's actually going on here. For me, uh, doing vipassana practice, when I was introduced to it um, in Burma, uh, what I loved about it and was so valuable for me was that until that time I had been doing Zen practice. And in Zen practice, I had this training to um, sit and be present, in my experience, and have a certain, hopefully wise, unconditional acceptance of the present moment as I sat there. And that was a wonderful practice for me, just to be open and present and accepting of this as it is. Maybe I didn't like it, but at least in meditation, I'd sit there and just be open to this as it is. It It tended to create a sense of wholeness or integrity um, uh, authenticity of just kind of here I am. But when I went to uh, Burma, I was introduced to Vipassana. Um, there was this, a much greater emphasis on discernment and investigation than there was in Zen. Look more carefully. And what the Zen, what the Vipassana training did for me, was to help me be much more discerning 
in the subtle details of how the mind was not accepting. I had a kind of, a, through Zen, I'd learned kind of, a, kind of a broad kind of acceptance of the moment. But the mind had all these subtle shifts and movements of accepting, not accepting, wanting, not wanting, rejecting, doing, this stuff, that was, you know, operating in this kind of, you know, minute, minute scale. <clears throat> and the vipassana practice, the careful attention of vipassana, helped me be much more discerning, make much careful distinctions about these little movements of the mind. And as I did that, I could become freer. As I did that, I could become more peaceful, more settled, more concentrated. Because there was net less garbage, there was less static, there, or there was less agitation going on, um, uh, even though the agitation was quite uh, subtle. So this idea of making dis, uh, you know, being, being discerning and looking more carefully, what's really going on here? And then always, as you see more carefully what's going on, in the background there's a choice. <clears throat> then what? What do I do here? When I see, you know, I have a choice here um, about what I look at, what I do, how I relate to something. Then on what basis do you choose among all the choices you have? <clears throat> so for example, you could be looking at your breathing in meditation. And uh, as, you, as you go into your breathing more deeply and more deeply, you see there's a variety of things going on. You might see that you're holding your breath slightly. You might see that you're um, not really breathing out all the way. You might see that as you're looking more deeply at your breath, <clears throat> you don't see your breath <clears throat> in more detail, but you see in more detail the mind that's relating to the breath, the attitude you have. And you see that the attitude is one of striving. You have great expectation. You want something to happen. You're supposed to get concentrated. <clears throat> Certainly you're supposed to be as concentrated as the person next to you. Certainly is in the you know, 13th absorption. And, um, and so there's comparative thinking, comparative mind going on. And there's all these little attitudes in the mind that you know, can become revealed as we start getting stiller and concentrated. And as we see these little greater distinctions in the mind, the attitude, there's a choice. What do you do about it? One possibility is um, you don't do anything about it at all except don't believe it. You just kind of let it be. You just kind of you know, don't pick it up. Just let it kind of be in the background or kind of just float around. Another possibility is you let go of it. Another possibility is you say, it's not, at, it's not helpful for me to be striving and pushing here to get concentrated on the breath. <clears throat> so let me see, is, is there a better attitude to have, a more useful one? Yeah, maybe it's more useful to be receptive rather than, rather than demanding. Let me receive and just allow things to reveal themselves to me. And so we try that and see what that's like. And so this process of discerning leads to, a, of this, this distinction of seeing more clearly, then leads to a better and better choices. And as we make better choices, the choices are being guided by what helps us become peaceful, what helps us become more relaxed, more tranquil, more peaceful, at least in meditation, more still. Um, and um, so, the, so par, part of what wisdom is, is discernment, discernment. It also involves insight. And that's kind of a synonym for, for wisdom in Buddhism is insight. As we can see more clearly what's going on in the depth of our minds and our behavior, our attitudes, our reactions and everything and into our experience, <clears throat> and then we start seeing more carefully what, you know, we have insight into how the mind works and we have insight into what the mind does. How the mind takes things to be permanent that are not permanent takes things to be self that are not self, 
takes things to be um, uh, uh, sources of happiness and well-being, they're not really sources of happiness and well-being. And this process of seeing more deeply into that helps us then to not suffer because we've taken what's impermanent be permanent. Suffer because we've taken what's uh, self, take what's not self as self. Suffer because we've taken what's not really ultimate happiness to be kind of happiness. And so we see, you have this insight into how this works. And so that again gives us a choice. What do we do? We can shift a little bit our orientation so we don't get so pushed into, uh, stuck in these kinds of delusions of permanence or the delusions of this is who I really am or the delusions of this is really going to make me happy. The California lottery, that'll do it. And um, so, um, so part of it is, is this insight, looking more deeply. There's a wisdom story that I like of um, insight into. Um, it has to do with, it's a Sufi story of um, a wealthy father who died and he left to his two sons his um, inheritance. And so they were quite excited to get their inheritance. And the inheritance was going to be in a box. And so after their father died, they opened the box. And in it were two rings. One was obviously a very, very, very expensive ring. Diamonds and rubies and gold and, you know, just worth an amazing amount of money. And uh, the other was just like a little tin ring that was just like, you know, from a, from a dime store, just a little cheap little thing. And the, so what are they going to do? There's two of them and two rings. So the, the, the older son says, well, I'm the older son. I get to choose. So he chose the expensive ring. And so the younger son got that little tin, five and dime store kind of ring. As the years went along, the older son squandered his wealth. And soon enough, he was destitute and poor and miserable. And as the years went along, the uh, younger son became happier and happier. Not necessarily more wealthy, but more at ease and happier and more peaceful. And at some point, the two brothers ran into each other and uh, and they discussed their situations and the older one said, well, how is it that, you know, I'm so miserable and you are so happy and doing so well in life? And the younger one said, oh, remember that ring? Well, it turned out that inscribed on the, on the ring uh, were the, uh, was the, uh, the phrase, this too will pass. <laughs> this too will pass and um, I look at it every day of my life in many situations and it made me so much e- it made it so much easier for me to go through my life to understand that this too will pass um, and so the question for you now now that I've given some background for wisdom and I've told you that there's not much wisdom in a talk like this mm-hmm. It's really about you having wisdom and discovering it for yourself. 
Why do you think it was such a powerful wisdom statement? Why do you think it was so helpful for the sun to be reminded this too will pass? That's the question for you. Who would like to offer some? So back there in the corner. If you, if you wait and use the mic, we appreciate it. People who can't hear. And so um, I've had cancer a couple times, and I've had more surgeries than anybody would really want. And whenever I'm in the grip of something that hurts a lot, I just think exactly what you just said. And you just move through it, and it stops. And it took me a long time to learn that that kind of pain does have an end. It doesn't, it's not always. And sometimes it's high and sometimes it's low. But those exact words have meant more to me over the last decade than practically anything else. Just to let it go. That's beautiful, thank you. And, um, and uh, the opposite was what I call the delusion of permanence. Oh no, it's going to be this way forever. And what I find in myself that, you know, of course, I don't think that things are going to last forever. I don't, you know, I have some wisdom. But uh, I do, but my mind doesn't. <laughs> and so sometimes I, I see my mind falling into this, you know, of course it's not going to be this way forever, but I'm operating as if it does. Thank you. So, someone else? <clears throat> My grandmother was not a Sufi, but her words were, this too shall pass. And she was a child of the Depression, and I think it, those were the words that she lived by, and she passed on to all of us. Is that helpful for you? Absolutely. Yeah, it's our family mantra. Over there to your right. I learned those words when I was a kid from an old poem, Once in Persia Reigned a King. You heard that one? Who upon his royal ring inscribed the saying, True today, even this shall pass away. And I found that disturbing because I was happy when I read that. <laughs> and so I've pondered those words since I was about nine. And um, it's helpful on the bad things, but confusing to me because I really try to hang on to the good. And does it help you to hang on to the good? Well, I think so. <laughs> I mean, is this a trick of the mind? I don't know. But if uh -huh. I'm having a really, like yesterday, I got hit out of the blue with a migraine that I thought was going to crack my head in half. And so I have to live through it. OK, I accept it. I knew I was really tense about it. So I brought in some really lovely thoughts. And um, it helped me get through it. That's beautiful. The, um, so what's, is there a difference between holding on to happiness and promoting it. <laughs> What's it mean? Kind of uh, uh, supporting it, nourishing it, re reminding us of it, bringing it forth, supporting it when it's there. <clears throat> you know, the fact that uh, everything's impermanent doesn't mean you just let things let, let nature take its course and let things come and go as they wish. 
<clears throat> if you're happy, I mean, please support it and encourage it. But if you expect to stay happy forever that way, you know, hold on to it, the conventional kinds of happiness, um, sooner or later it will pass. That too. <clears throat> and, but if your sense of self and your sense of, of uh, satisfaction in life, your sense of meaning in life, your sense of success in life is dependent on a particular kind of happiness and the happiness passes, then um, you know, it's like the foundation disappears from your life. And then people desperately want that again because they don't feel validated unless they have it. And so how is it that we can have happiness? I mean, Buddhism is about becoming happy, I hope. Um, how is it we can have, have happiness uh, in a way that we hold it, um, promote it, support it, nourish it, but uh, is not a cause for further suffering? Here. <coughs> I was going to mention how it reminded me of a, of a phrase of a powerful uh, Caesar who had a person behind him during a parade of celebration of his success reminding him, this too shall pass, this too shall pass. So he doesn't get too overwhelmed with adulations from his people. But you're mentioning that happiness is our goal, I thought it would be more of a peace and evenness. Happiness, as you said, comes and goes. Yeah, there's different... Uh, so it, it just brought up a question rather than just the phrase I wanted to share. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, you know it's, uh, it's been my experience that the greatest happiness is almost synonymous with a very profound peace. You know, it's not bubbly happiness. <laughs> There's all kinds of happinesses, right? There's different kinds of happiness. And so, um, it's not birthday party happiness. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 There's different kinds of happinesses, but, uh, <clears throat> but the greatest happiness is peace. Thank you. The discussion has really made me think of what role memories play in this too shall pass. I mean, memories are kind of our way of, um, our brain's way of kind of clinging to something that's happened to it us. It can be. Yeah. It doesn't um, have to be. <laughs> I suppose. I, the reason I bring this up is um, I'm spending a lot of time with my father since my mother died. And my dad seems to remember all the good things. And um, I don't know if there's some point of wisdom in choosing what to let go of and what to uh, remember. Beautiful. The other thing this reminds me of is that in terms of this too shall pass, my, my mother died in January. And there was something that really came out of that experience of that recognition of even the good moments are going to pass. And it, it's led me into a deeper appreciation of that moment. So that they're real stop and enjoy it because they're just not always going to be there. 
um, the delusion of permanence. I, I've had medical problems where, yeah, I've, my shoulders were in such intense pain, and is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to have a, be able to you know, raise my arm again? Um, and certainly that was a lot of suffering, but there's also that coming later, realizing that I've been in front of a computer screen for 12 hours or, you know, in work or worried about money or whatever it is, and it was a really nice day out. Like, I, I stepped out for lunch for a minute, and it was just absolutely gorgeous. And to miss that is also, in some ways, a form of suffering. God, that was such a great day. I was thinking about the other ring. The other ring has jewels, but no inscription. It's just money. Um, you could do a riff on capitalism, I suppose. But in my life, I, I have a, a trust account that goes back three generations in my family. And it has been a source of great uh, investigation and uh, it's torn other parts of the family apart about how to use this mm. legacy from three generations ago. It's a current issue for me. Thanks. But it is just money. And there's a, sto there's a st similar story of the father who dies and left to his children. Um, he said, there's great, I'm leaving you great wealth, but it's buried in the field. Yeah. And so they spend years and years digging the field looking for the wealth. But uh, in the process, they, um, you know, they, 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 um, it's like plowing the field, and so they plant potatoes, you know, <laughs> and uh, crops, and, and then they keep looking every spring, they dig it up and look, and, but then they plant these crops, and they have bumper crops, and so they get wealthy. <laughs> so, it was, you know, I guess the father tricked them, and the wealth was there, but only with their work. Or some. Yeah, there's another, another mic over on that side. I, I was thinking, um, this too shall pass works um, very nicely on the ephemeral things for me. But there are large societal issues that can catch me and look like forever and look like they've been there for as long as history has been recorded. Mm. And as they loom out there, I've, I've tried, um, I've tried as far as I've gotten is, this too shall pass, but likely not in this lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, yeah, so there's all kinds, that's true, all kinds of things like that. And, um, but I, I wonder, I mean, it's a certainly I think, valid or important to take that in and be aware of that and reflect the way you're doing. But I wonder if, um, if it's, I wonder if it's a kind of a generalization that maybe is, maybe, maybe is not as useful as applying, you know, discernment, really insight has to be here and now. And so what's in front of you? What's really here? And I wonder if there's times, and I wonder if there are ways in which actually more useful to focus on, you know, something more immediate. Um, so what, I, what I'm trying to say is that, um, 
something maybe very different than what you're intending. Um, uh, Buddhism is not meant to be an answer to everything. But it is meant to be an answer to the way in which we relate to the world, to ourselves. And so, to generalize about things we can't have any effect out there uh, is useful to do. I mean, we have to find and be wise about it. But, but um, you know, how, how, how you are in relationship to what's happening in the world, that is much more changeable. Um, that, that's quite precise, and um, thank you. And um, in that place where your mind can get a little bit caught, at least mine can be caught by an idealism and uh, um, a profound optimism that uh, flies sometimes in the face of reality. And so that's where I, I look for um, ways to ground. And so thank you. Mm. I do bring the practice back to myself. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is that, that uh, the realism can be fear-provoking. And how do you work in, the, in that moment with that fear? Yeah, so that you, you look inside. I think the fear is something you produce, not the world. And so then we can turn back and look and really f- what's going on here in a deep way. Um, and uh, I mean, certainly there are time centers trying to understand the world better, but, uh, but here's where the source, right? This is the root of it all is here. <clears throat> and how can we find our peace? How can we find our freedom with all these things? Uh, and I think we become more effective responders to the world if we've done our work here and are able to respond without fear. And so I, I think of Buddhism as being very optimistic uh, about what you can do for yourself. What, ha- what the world is about, what happens in the world, I like to think that Buddhism is realistic. Not optimistic, not pessimistic, just realistic. Um, but it's very optimistic about what, how, you, how you can be transformed and changed. And hopefully in you being changed, uh, you're helping change the world. So last one, then by the by the entryway there. Thank you. Maybe appropriately the last one, because taking off on the conquest of fear, um, I think of the phrase, um, as I too shall pass. And once you've realized that, and you have a perspective beyond yourself, then... Um, Mm. You do find some peace and happiness. And that's been your experience? Yes, sir. Beautiful, thank you. Okay, so some things, uh, <coughs> some things don't pass soon enough. <laughs> some things pass too soon. I don't know how this talk is for you, but uh, it, it's, t- it's time for this talk to pass. <laughs> so thank you all very much.